Well, good morning again. Um, if we if we haven't met yet, my name is Kyle. I'm the lead pastor here at Generations, and really each week I try to echo a single refrain as I start. That is, you have a story. We have a story here at Generations that is a collective story that is growing and shaping, and God's story that has been written in his word and intersects our life, we've really been invited to experience that, to have that story connect with our life. And our, and our journey together as a church is to build enough trust with you, with people, with our community, so that we can exchange stories and begin to share how God is at work, both here in our church community, but also in people's stories. And so, first and foremost, I hope that as you get to know people, as you get to know me, as you get to know our team, as you get to know just those around you, that you build enough trust so that you can share your story. Now, there's a part of our story that we're not always quick to share. One of those aspects are our insecurities. How many of you know someone who has maybe shared an insecurity? Maybe you have an insecurity yourself, and you've been a little reluctant to share that. And as you get to know others, they share something with you, and you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was an issue for you. And it, you've built enough trust with them that they can share that. Um, some of you may be feeling some of that now. Maybe you're stepping into a church for, for the first time in a long while, and you're, you're, you're kind of processing, like, I hope they don't see me because of maybe some shame, maybe because of of something in your past that you feel like if if they would know this, then they wouldn't want me here. Well, let me say first and foremost, you're welcome and wanted here. And the reason we gather together is to remind each other that you are welcome, that you are wanted, and then to take that message out. Because God first initiated his love and his grace with us. And so that is not something we just hold close to the vest, but it's something that we are able to share. And as we think about our insecurities, what's strange about insecurity is that you could have a lot of things, a lot of maybe even relationships or Maybe, maybe you're financially well off and still feel like you have nothing. doesn't matter where you grew up or how you grew up. You have something, but yet because of this gnawing nature, this unsteadiness, it's as if you have nothing. Some measure of security likely exists in all of us. And just because I stand up here does not mean that I am immune. I, I can't say it better than that. So, okay, okay, hold caveat here. Uh, for those of you who were watching online and didn't hear that, we had someone in the crowd say amen. But the reason, the reason why we did that, we're like the talk back church, like the good kind of talk back church, because we've gotten to know each other's story. In fact, yeah, I've got a friend here. Uh, I will not call them out, but sometimes we'll be in conversation and I'll say something and they'll be like, Kyle, be careful, your insecurity showing a little bit. 
And, and, and they say that not because they're trying to make me feel bad or guilty, but it's a friendly reminder that if we are doing life together with God for others, then we need people in our life to remind us of solid truths so that we don't have to be insecure. Because to be secure means you're firmly attached, you're connected. There, there, there's a bond, there's a, there's a stability, and what we need is to be reminded that we don't have to sh- stand on uneasy ground or on truths that, that are less than, but we can be rooted, we can be, we can be firm, we can be attached. I don't know how many more syn- synonyms I can come up with to illustrate the point, but like that there, there's, there's, a, there's a place. At which, when those moments or those words or even those thoughts in our head and in our mind, or sometimes even when someone notices something about us, and we go from, oh no, to where it just almost doesn't bother us anymore because we're not defined by that statement or that observation. We're not consumed by it. And what 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 we have to do as the 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 followers of Jesus in the room is and that Charles said it well. That's that's why we sing because we all forget. We need to be reminded and to remind ourselves that what we do and why we do it is is to help us be secure in a time of uncertainty and anxiousness. And so Insecurity, fundamentally, I think, if I had to boil it down, is, is the idea of, like, you're not going to feel safe. There, there's, a, there's a drifting nature, and you don't feel safe. But what causes insecurity? See, insecure feelings arise oftentimes when we're not confident or we're not sure. There's, there's something maybe in our past or something even about what we think others want from us, these expectations, and we're unsure or unconfident in ourselves about whether we can live up to them. And maybe some of our insecurity comes because we actually know ourselves better maybe than others know us. And and we know the reality of meeting those expectations, that is going to be a great challenge for us. And so we're not confident about an issue. And so sometimes in- insecurity can feel like we're shaky or anxious, not feeling entirely stable. And we can discuss general insecurity at length. But what I appreciate about today's text, specifically the Shema, this creed that Israel repeated morning and night, is that it works through our core to a specific type of insecurity. Spiritual insecurity. Spiritual insecurity means to not feel safe in your relationship with God. Spiritual insecurity means to not feel safe in your relationship with God. It means anxiety around God's care for your wants, needs, and desires. Meaning you can be insecure about feeling God doesn't care, but thinking about God not doing what you want, how you want, when you want. 
There's, there's an uncertainty of, does God really have my best interest at heart? Can I trust him? And especially when, when the timing of things that we want or desire doesn't seem to line up with what we think they should. And what happens is when the timing is inconsistent, when our desires and our wants and the picture that we have in our mind are out of sync, we can get frustrated with God and not feel safe with him. Particularly when he takes a long time. <laughs> and when this occurs, we tend to manufacture a substandard of what God won't provide in order to help our feelings and desires be tethered until we feel like God gives us what we want. We create some sort of system, perception, false reality that we leverage to cope until we feel safe again. And what happens is that that substandard, that rubric, that perception will always break down. And even though it may make us feel better for a while, it's faulty, it's lesser, and it ultimately can't give us the footing and stability we need to navigate through life. And so we choose a different type of rubric or game to distract ourselves. I call this the vending machine syndrome. It's like where we, where we treat God like a vending machine, where if we can just push in the right code, we should get a treat, like and get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And what happens is when we start to play some of that game, when out pops some Funyuns, they're usually stale. They don't taste good. Or the Skittles are hard. And so this seeps into our heart, into our mind, and we begin to assume God doesn't want us to enjoy anything. But it's not God that's giving us stuff or our wants or desires. It's the lesser system that we've settled for. And we know enough theologically, or at least socially, maybe in a church setting, to not say the quiet part out loud. But inside of ourselves, we have some arguments with God about God, about ourselves, and about life. And we're confused and frustrated and, and wondering... Is something wrong with me to is something wrong with God to let me just keep everything at a distance and work my own system? And as we do this, we come up with different solutions. But the solution to this type of questioning and problem is always lesser in the world's standards. I One psychologist article said this, that if you want to deal with your insecurity, building a healthy level of self-esteem is a way to combat anxiety and insecurity. Rising your self-esteem is a goal that has many positive implications in many areas of your life. Setting small goals and accomplishing and meeting them, such as try journaling your accomplishments. And when you don't feel good, read, read, 
them back to yourself. That sounds good. Sounds like a very good and practical way to approach dealing with your insecurity and rising that by boosting your self-esteem. But you all know that you can get a thousand compliments and one negative will X out all of them. You can invest in someone's love language all you want and no one can love you enough or you cannot love anyone enough in the exact way you want to be loved or they want to be loved to bring you out of your insecurity. Let me say it a different way. Without a safe and secure relationship with God, we begin to fragment ourselves. We begin to chase and compartmentalize. We begin to build systems that cannot sustain the security that our hearts crave. And our whole being begins to kind of portion off. You've experienced this when you think about like the types of conversations you have with yourself about yourself at home, the types of conversations you have about yourself and others when you're at work, the types of conversations you have about yourself and with others in a public setting. There's different layers, and the goal is that, that you be the same person in all of those settings, and you be so integrated, you be so rooted and firmly stable that there's not an inconsistency no matter what environment you step into. But we've grown so accustomed to life lived in fragmented ways that it almost seems natural to have all of these different levels of standards to try to boost ourselves in these different settings to deal and cope with our insecurity. And over time, we become disintegrated and exist and incongruently within ourselves. I mean, how many different words do we have to put in front of health? To communicate about health. I, spiritual health, mental health, physical health, emotional health, relational health, financial health. I mean, I mean I, you just, you could just, all these modifiers. But why do we do that? Because we've taken components of total wholeness and wellness and we've sectioned them off. And we think if we can solve this piece, then all is good, and we neglect that life was not meant to be lived in tight, nice, tiny little compartments and sections of emotional, financial, spiritual, mental health. There's an actual overlap that begins to change and transform, and so maybe as you attack one of them to seek to build health there, that it will affect others. But you can't only address one without addressing the others. These issues are all interconnected. It's why a walk or spending time in sunshine can drastically improve your mental health. And we're not alone in figuring out how do we go from these sectioned lives to being a fully integrated person so that we are most true self in each and every context. The, the self that Charles alluded to is be, be the self that, that you God created you to be instead of settling for the lesser version that we have in our own hearts and minds and, and the systems that we play. On this journey towards wholeness, God doesn't leave us to figure out the answer to that question ourselves. In fact, he moves towards people. This is why he chooses in the nation of Israel. 
He, he chooses a people and, and takes them out of their land, rescues them eventually from a place of slavery, and sends them to a place to represent a life lived totally under connection and attachment with him in front of people for them. And on this journey, where we're at in Deuteronomy, is Moses is on the edge of commissioning these people into the land that God has promised, keeping his word, being consistent. And at this place, Moses gives a series of speeches. And a part of this speech is, he says, listen, Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God. With your heart, with your soul, and your strength. Aspects of being, of our personhood, need to be connected and attached to who God is. And so that we can respond in every area of life. And so we can start by addressing some different areas. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at an aspect, but know that that aspect of being human is not lived in isolation. And before we can get to the parts, really, of that we are called and invited to, to, to be with God, there's a verb. To love God. To be secure with Him. To be safe with Him. To respond to who He is and what He has done that we can embody a life lived in safety with him. And this, what Moses does, is as he gives these series of speeches on the edge of the promised land, he knew that this would be tested for these people, which is why he gives them this phrase, why God instructs him to say this, why they needed to say it both morning and evening. And so as they got an understanding of who God is, they could begin to live out a response so proving to the watching world that God is who he says he is. And so as we get into those aspects, we need to address what love is. Cue the, what is love, <laughs> baby? <laughs> Sorry. You, uh, I was like, someone's got to be thinking it. Someone's got to be thinking it. It's like, you could probably go on and be like, get the song stuck in your head. But what's amazing is while that's framed as a question in that song, God answers that in a very personal and practical way. And you at least experientially know that we use love all the time for filler words. Everything from like pizza to the weather to a person and it's just, maybe there's more precise words like enjoy or find affinity to. Um, I, I don't, I think we kind of get that essence of there's a difference there. But there's another aspect of how we use love in our everyday vocabulary that I don't think we kind of like to deal with. It's the idea of like love as an obligation or tolerance. Let me say it this way. You have family and you love them. Bless their hearts. 
or they're supposed you're supposed to love them or 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 you and, and you say it you're like i love my family and some of you genuinely deeply mean that and some of you say it because that's what's been expected of you so you say it out of obligation and then sometimes out of tolerance for them Oh, I, I love them, and you're in talk, talking in conversation, not just about family, but about other people. And it's like, you don't really mean that you, you find there's a mutual relationship of care and forgiveness and grace and persistent kindness. What is there is a general tolerance. It means I can at least stand to be in the same room with them, so of course I love them. And we've settled for a lesser version of love because... because you know, people want to divide or be compartmentalized. And so now we've grown to a place where it's like love just simply means coexistence. And that was never the intention of love. And so when, when God gives these Israelites the words through Moses to say love, it doesn't just mean tolerance of God or be obligated to him. It begins to, our, our affections change. Our heart changes our actions then begin to match up with our hearts. It begins to press into something that is a little bit more challenging at times than we are comfortable with. Because we're used to love with limits and love with conditions. If a person meets a set of approved standards, then I can love them or tolerate them. We may not always want that kind of love. And here's the kicker, is when we settle for that type of love, that oftentimes we can wonder, is, is that how others feel about us? Cue insecurity. When we settle for a lesser version of love, interpersonal relationships and connections break down. And so, of course, when we start to engage God, with that type of love, it seems faulty. It's fragmented. It doesn't seem like this is quite the way it should be. We may be comfortable in it because that's how we've grown to experience or accustomed to it, but we've not arrived at a place where there's persistent kindness, where there's true forgiveness, where there's durable relationship. See that, I, I talked about the timing of like God answering prayers, wants and desires. See, wh wh when there's love present, there's durable relationship that can expand and shrink as time goes on, but it does not break. And that is the type of love that God invites us into now, he, he has initially moved towards us. He's revealed himself to us, specifically revealed himself to Israel in this moment, which is why they need to be reminded of their rescue out of slavery in Egypt. And we, too, need reminded that God moved towards us in Jesus. See, if you hear anything at all today, I want you to hear this. And sometimes we wonder, like, where is God? The answer to that question 
is not at a specific location at a set time of the week. The answer to that question is God revealed himself to us in Jesus. And in revealing himself to Jesus, he reconnects us with our heavenly father and thus tears this, there's this barrier, this, this veil where people had to go to a set time and place to interact and connect with and worship God. But then tore that veil so that God moved from a place to a person to a people. See, where God dwells is in heaven and with his people. Precisely where his will and his way is lived out. So when the people of God are connected to him and respond how he would respond if he were in your shoes. That's precisely where God is, sitting on the throne of your heart. And so when the Israelites are invited to love God, it's a foretaste of that reality, a move that says change your heart's desires and, and change your actions so that they move towards thinking about God in every area of life. God's love for us is a feeling, but it's also an action. It's something God chooses to do. Moses says this, because of his love for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment. It's something he does. And so the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's love by showing love in return. And just like God's love, human love should show itself through actions. Later on in Deuteronomy, it says this, chapter 10. What does the Lord your God ask of you except for fear of the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and keep his commandments? All of these actions, this demeanor, is centered around love. I must experience a draw in my heart, and it must show up in my actions. If it does not, maybe I don't actually love God. I just say I do. And that seems weighty and hard, but it's because we've grown so accustomed to fragmented lives. We have to return to a place where we've not divorced heart, mind, and action from each other. And it starts to show up in the way the Israelites are called to live. I, in the Old Testament, as, as Moses continues to give these series of speeches, specifically in Deuteronomy, it says, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows love for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show love for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's love by showing love to others. This is the foundational idea underneath the famous line, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, we participate in the safety of God. As our hearts and our affections change, as our actions change, we participate in bringing who God is to those around us. And this doesn't happen by sheer willpower. We cannot will ourselves 
to do better. We cannot just drag ourselves to a place where I will now do right. Which is why we need Jesus. Jesus does what legalism can never do, by sheer willpower can never do. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. He takes the laws that were given verbally and puts them in our heart. So from the inside out, our worldview changes. Without this inner transformation, we can never please God. So people aren't changed by just, you should do that, you shouldn't do that, what they are changed by. And what my hope is, is that you are changed by is the power of God manifest in your life, changing your heart. And you hear that through words proclaimed, through actions lived, repeated over time. And we don't try to to do those things. We don't try to earn it. We become the kind of person who simply lives love. Because if we try to by our own sheer willpower, it will just kill us. But if you receive love as the principle of your life in all dimensions of your being, then you will see love. Love is kind, love does not envy, and so all the way down that line. And having received love, you'll be transformed into a person who then can love God and love others. I think of one of my students from youth group. Some of you may have... uh, known him. His name was was Caleb. And when we were in Lexington and we were sitting around discussing this idea of how how this idea of love has moved from the Old Testament to Jesus in the New and how the people of God starts to like live that out. Specifically in 1 John 4, 19, it says we love because God first loved us. And as we were talking about this, how, how does this start to bubble up in our lives? How does our hearts become transformed? And we talk about specific actions Caleb, we, we were talking, and I was like, okay, let's get very specific. What do you got going on this week? He's like, well, I'm getting ready to go on a trip to Nebraska with my grandparents and my family. Cool, great. Um, how do you start to show God's love in that place? And we thought, and, you know, we kind of went around the circle a couple of times, and other people was like, well, you could be kind, you could be patient, like you're riding in the car with your siblings, don't hit them. Like, like, like things, things like that. And, and, and it, was, it was funny because Caleb was, was really considering this. And he said, you know, I'm traveling with my grandparents. My grandparents are elderly. They can't carry their bags. What if at every hotel stop, I picked up their bags and I took them into their hotel room for them? And when it was time to leave, I was there at the door to take them and put them back in the car. And I so appreciated Caleb's response. Why? Because it was specific. It was something that he was going to do that week. He didn't, he didn't just give me a general statement of, oh, I could be better or I could do this. He identified something in his life and he said, I can do this. And he also noticed his grandparents. He chose one thing that was something specific and he noticed what they might need. And he knew his grandparents. And I think as we think about love, sometimes it's so divorced from reality, or it's so conceptual, 
and it's so big and seems so overwhelming that we forget maybe the most simplistic thing we can do, not to earn God's love, not to check something off, but to notice people around us, be aware of what they need, and do something specific. And it was funny because he got back from the trip, and I was like, so how was it? And he said, man, it was, it was so great. He's like, I, I enjoyed my time. I got, he said, he said, I actually got to know my grandparents better because I was living, like, because he was the one, you know, at the edge of their hotel door, and he was the one, you know, taking them back. And just the stories that came out of that. And so we need this reminder. We need this creed. We need this call and invitation to love God because he is worthy and he loves us. And that allows us and enables us to love other people well. And so as you think about how you respond to God with love this week, you might need to ask the question, how am I responding to God in love with my total being? Have you withdrew some part of your life that you're unopening to it? Finances, your relationships. And just watch that through maybe small tangible actions. If you are reminded that you are doing it, not to earn God's love, but because you have first been loved, then you might be surprised at how your affections towards God change, how your affections towards those other people might change, and how your actions become more consistent because you're rewiring the pattern in your brain that is living love rather than trying to earn love. See, love will always be a form of tolerance until it's rooted in Jesus. And we, aren't, we are to be people who aren't just simply to tolerate the world we live in or to coexist peaceably, but to love, which means noticing, knowing, and bringing truth through action to others. See, love sometimes, though, is not always soft or nice, but it can make you softer and it can make you nicer. <laughs> but love is also risky. And we serve a Jesus that risked his life for us. And that Jesus is big enough and worthy enough to risk love. See, our idea is sometimes that Jesus saves you and then makes you nice. And like I said, that can happen. But this is also the same love that crucifies you and then resurrects you. And that is the power that we need to sustain us each and every day. And this God is worthy of your love. And so over the next several weeks, as we talk about different aspects of our being, to prepare your heart, your soul, and your strength to embody the love of God. For he loves you, and he died for you, but he also resurrects you. And so what I want to do just as we close, we're going to do our normal prayer here at the end where we pray you out. But I just want you to consider, is there something specific 
that you can do this week? Is there someone that you can notice? And is there someone that you can get to know better so that you can share God's love with them because you have been loved? So let's throw up our closing benediction, our closing prayer. And I know typically we say this all together, but I just want to pray this on you today, if you'll let me. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Through this reality, may you live your faith every day, everywhere. May God's family expand and grow. May your motivation be because of Jesus, living out his story. May you make his ways be known and then lived for generations to come. Amen. You are loved. May you live loved this week. Go live loved. Have a great week.